Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. We are um, in the book of 2 Samuel 23. We're also celebrating Memorial Day this weekend, as I mentioned, and as you know, we would be amiss to fail to remember those men and women who gave the final full measure of devotion in the service of our country. So if you have a relative who gave their life in defense of our country while serving in a branch of the armed forces. And let's, let's just kind of limit it to two or three generations, perhaps. You know, let's don't go back to great-great-great-great-grandpappy in the Revolutionary War or whatever. But uh, if you have a relative who gave their life in defense of our country while serving in a branch of the armed forces, would you please stand in their memory to honor them? Do we have anyone like that today? Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for the, sur- the sacrifice you made as family members while your loved one was serving and giving their life. Now, if any of you at any time served or currently serve in any of the branches of the armed forces of the United States or their associated reserves or other components, would you please stand that we may honor you? Yeah, yeah. Simper Thank you so much for your service. This, um, this spring, we had a group of men that met each Wednesday night. We studied First and Second Samuel together. We were, in essence, doing a biographical study of the life of King David. And, and uh, the question that was on everybody's mind comes from Acts 13.22, where the Apostle Paul is preaching, and he is actually talking about God's relationship with King David. And in the verse, Paul says that God says, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And, of course, the question that's usually asked about David is, come on, (laughs) you know what the question is. How can this guy who is an adulterer and has multiple wives all at the same time, how is it that this man whose palace was filled with multiple families and many children to whom he was a bad father, How can it be that this king, who conspired to commit murder to cover up his sin, and ultimately was so full of pride that he commanded a census of his army to consolidate his own power, acting as if the people belonged to him instead of to God, how is it that this man, David, is regarded in the New Testament as a man after God's own heart? Well, the simple answer is, He kept on repenting and going back to God after he sinned. He wasn't morally perfect. He wasn't even morally good. But he knew it. He recognized it over and over. And the Psalms are the evidence of the outpouring of his heart in repentance and contrition before the Lord. But another reason he's regarded as a man after God's own heart is he was teachable. He was coachable. He hadn't hardened his heart like so many other men in the Bible. He he would sin. Oh, brother, would he sin. Mess up. But there would so often be other men around him who would graciously yet firmly call his hand on it. And, And David would listen to them. David had what the Bible calls 
his mighty men. Uh, it's a group of almost 40 men uh, outlined in the scriptures that were military leaders, brave men who performed uncommon acts of courage and valor. These were guys that David could count on. And so it seems appropriate on this Memorial Day weekend that to look at one military man in the Bible whose deeds have largely gone unrecognized, honestly. I want us to spend a few minutes looking at this man called Eleazar in 2 Samuel 23. He's mentioned briefly in this passage that describes three special men of David. Let me start with verse 8 to just give you some context here in chapter 23 of 2 Samuel. These are the names of David's mighty warriors. Joshua Bashabeth, a Tachemanite, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men, whom he killed in one encounter. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai, the Eohite. As one of the three mighty warriors, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pas Damim for battle. Then the Israelites retreated, but Eleazar stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip the dead. And I, I see at least, in these verses, I see at least four characteristics of a man or a woman after God's own heart. Let's look at these. Eleazar was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pas Damim. The Philistines were the scourge of the Israelites for at least 300 years or more. They had never really been driven out of the promised land like they were supposed to be. And so God's people had to constantly deal with them. The, the Israelites would win a battle against the Philistines and take some land. And then the Philistines would battle back against the Israelites and they would retake the land. And this went on back and forth for hundreds of years. But you notice in our passage, David is not out there on this field alone. He had some mighty men with him. Well, at least one, right? We see in these verses that the rest of the army fled, but there's at least one that stayed and fought alongside of David. And here's our first principle. If you want to be a man or woman after God's own heart, you need some mighty men and mighty women alongside of you. We live in a Western culture that really emphasizes a rugged individualism, doesn't it? You know, we emphasize correctly to a large degree that you need an individual relationship with Christ. But I think too often we read the Bible as if it's all about us as individuals. Too often we worship as though we, uh, and we worship, the worship is all about us as individuals, and we forget we're part of a body. Too often we ignore the context of the, of the people of God, the community of faith. And in the New Testament, it's not only the individual that's emphasized, it also emphasizes the body of Christ, the bride of Jesus, that which he loves and gave his life for. The famous 19th century missionary to Africa, David Livingston. Oh, you, you remember that name, right? Dr. Livingston, I presume. Anybody remember that? Okay, I'm of a different generation, obviously. <laughs> David Livingston received a letter from some friends who wrote him while he was overseas, and they asked, we would like to send other men to help you in Africa. Have you found a good road into your area yet? 
Livingston wrote back, if you have men who will only come if they know there's a good road, I don't want them. I want men who will come if there is no road at all. Mighty men. David surrounded himself with men and women like that. And not only were they loyal to him, they weren't yes men either. There were times when the men around David had to tell him the truth. Really men confront him. And that's one of the reasons David is known as a man after God's own heart. He was teachable. The books of First and Second Samuel are filled with people who, even at great risk to themselves at times, told David the truth. And to his credit, he listened to it and received it. Men like Samuel, who helped give David career direction as a young man and helped him interpret the voice of God calling him to the throne. Men like Jonathan, who taught David lessons about brotherhood and loyalty. Uh, By the way, just by the way, they weren't all men either. God used a woman, Abigail, when David was a powerful king at one point, it was being dis, dis, uh, disobeyed and disrespected. He was ready to fly off the handle in anger at some people and kill them. But he was teachable enough that he backed off and allowed a common woman to challenge his angry decision and save his legacy. Get this, guys. He listened to a woman, and it greatly benefited him. And all God's women said... And all God's men said, a little, (sighs) work with me here, guys, work with me. Of course, there was also Nathan. Nathan confronted David about his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. He, He knew the king could have done away with him for daring to speak so boldly to him like that. Yet Nathan obeyed the Lord and became one of David's most trusted men because he dared to speak the truth to the king. Or how about Joab? Even though David had used Joab to indirectly take the life of Uriah the Hittite, Joab still stood beside David and served him, not only as a military commander, but he served David by telling him the truth about other things going on in the kingdom with David's son, Absalom. It takes a mighty man to love you enough to tell you the truth, even when he knows it's going to hurt you. And we need, beloved, we need those kind of mighty men and mighty women alongside of us. Or how about Gad? Gad was an honorable man who faithfully spoke the truth of God's word to David. Gad's influence is seen more toward the end of David's life. Where where David excelled, Gad's counsel followed along right right behind him. And when David failed, Gad's rebukes and advice quickly followed. Well, if teachability is a form of humility, then the opposite of teachability would be pride right? Pride's that very subtle serpent that slithers into our lives. It's, pride is not always me trying to remind you how good I am. We all know that's pride. We recognize that right away. Do you ever struggle, though, with the more subtle forms of pride? Uh, David Murray gives us the following comments about these subtle forms of pride. Pride doesn't ask questions or attempt anything that might reveal ignorance or risk looking stupid. Uh, uh, That's what I say. 
Pride doesn't accept responsibility for failures, but blames anyone and everyone else. Pride doesn't seek or accept one-to-one personal guidance or mentoring from parents, teachers, pastors, elders. Pride doesn't listen, but talks, 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 talks about self, especially when with someone you could learn a lot from. Pride doesn't take criticism or correction without resentment or retaliation. Pride resists moving out of personal comfort zones in work, school, ministry, or relationships. Pride is always looking for the easy and familiar route. Reference the quote from David Livingston, right? Because that way they can control the outcome and be sure it's a good outcome that will boost their reputation. Pride doesn't read, listen to, or learn anything that challenges existing presuppositions, practices, and prejudices. And so based on that, ladies and gentlemen, you are looking at a very, very proud man. Because I struggle with all of those things. How about you? Do you have some mighty men and women in your life to keep you from getting bit by the serpent of pride? This is where our small groups on Sunday morning and at other times help you build relationships with other people that will stand alongside of you. They'll speak truth into your life and help you become the man or the woman of God you're called to be. You need some people around you who aren't looking for the easy road, but they're ready to make a road where there isn't a road. And this was the kind of man Eleazar was to David, a man who would stand beside David in battle at Pas Damim. Pastamim is the site where David defeated Goliath about 30 years before. David was a young man then. Now he's very much middle-aged. So David has won victory on this very plot of land before. You think it meant something to David to be refighting this fight? And standing beside him in the battle is Eleazar, who must be thinking to himself, this is where my king defeated the giant enemy, Goliath, years ago. Here's another principle for us. If you want to be a man or a woman after God's own heart, you need to remember what God has done in the past. Notice I didn't say you need to live in the past, but you need to remember what God has done in the past. God knows that we have awfully short memories. And the problem is when we, when we start to forget what God has done in our lives at certain points, we start doubting his word, start doubting he ever did anything in our lives, start doubting that he's even real at all. And that's one reason Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, so we can remember. We're going to do that this morning, right now. We're going to do it a little bit differently than we normally do. We're going to take communion right now in the middle of our message. So our deacons are going to come now and begin to pass out the elements. And I would ask you, once you receive them, just hold on to them until everyone is served and we'll take it together. Do you have a physical place like Pas Damim in your life? A place that memorializes what God has done? That's why in the Bible, they're always building memorials, building altars, not not for decoration, 
but to memorialize the event so they would see it and remember what God did in their lives in the past. If you want to be a man or a woman after God's own heart, you need to remember what God has done in your past. So often our our memory is jogged by symbols and altars and memorials. When you can point to a certain prayer rail in a church or a baptistry and you can say right there, right there, that's where God did business with me. Jesus came right there into my heart. You know, as we were singing that old hymn a moment ago, Great is Thy Faithfulness, how many of you had a touchstone with something in your past as you sang that song? I know I did. I know I did. I can take you to the exact spot of ground. It's no longer a church there anymore. At First Baptist Church, Castle Hills, San Antonio, Texas, on January 23rd, 1972, in an evening service, this little boy grabbed his his mom's hand and said, I got to go down there. I need Jesus. And after speaking briefly to the pastor, he brought an old deacon to kneel down beside me. And that old deacon was so kind and so gentle. And he just helped me pray to receive Christ in my life. That is holy ground for me. And anytime I pass by on Northwest Military Highway in San Antonio, Texas, I remember that holy ground. That's where God did business with my life. These things are good things, beloved. Why? Because when you're going through tough times, when you're going through difficult times, it helps you to overcome doubt and fear to remember when God was real and did something in your life. Or maybe for you, it wasn't in a church. Maybe it was on a bench at a retreat center or a room at a summer camp. Maybe it was in a car. Maybe at your kitchen table. I know of one guy for whom it was an upturned mop bucket in a custodial closet where he knelt down, put his elbows on the bucket, and did business with God and received Christ that day. Maybe it was on a beach where you were baptized. And this is one reason, one of many, why baptism is so important. No, no, baptism doesn't save us, but it saves the memory of our salvation for those future times of doubt. When you build a memorial that allows you to look back and remember, you give yourself motivation to keep on fighting the fight, like Eleazar. When you're discouraged, when you want to quit this Christianity thing, when it looks like everybody else has left you on the battlefield and you're the only one there, you remember like Eleazar did, this is the field. This is where my king won victory for me. And he's allowing me the privilege of fighting alongside of him. And I'm tired and my hand is tired of holding onto this sword and it's cramping, but I'm not quitting on the Lord. Not today. No way. Not on this field. No way. Amen? Jesus knew that even after his death and his resurrection, even after he had ascended to heaven, he knew his disciples would get discouraged, get weak in their faith, begin to forget what it's like to follow him when they were young. They would begin to doubt. So in an upper room, the night before he was betrayed and eventually crucified, he helped them institute a memorial so they could remember what he had done for them. Let's stop for a moment and pray and thank the Lord for what he's done. Just in the quietness of this moment, go back in your memory. Thank the Lord. Father in heaven, we praise your name. 
that you would stoop to our level by sending your son to give his life for us. There's not a one of us that deserve it. Not a one of us could buy it. Totally at the whims of your grace and mercy do we assemble here today and take this meal because of what you've done, Jesus, to completely wash away all of our sins, past, present, and future through the blood of the Son. And so even now, Lord, come and make a memory in our hearts of this moment that will encourage us to stay on the battlefield in the future. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. I want to make sure that everyone is served. We don't want to leave anybody out. All right. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. So let's talk about this hand freezing to the sword for a minute. You ever held on to something so long, a tool, a heavy piece of luggage, a, a golf club, a tennis racket, a baseball bat, something like that. You ever held on to something for so long that your hand was just, just seemed locked into position and you had to pry the fingers off. The Bible says his hand was frozen to the sword. I don't think it meant it was below zero outside, okay? I believe it's describing the death grip he has on his weapon. His determination had allowed his hand to cramp onto that sword, and no way was he going to let go of it. Now, hear me very carefully what I'm about to say, because I want to be very, very true to what the original intent of this scripture is. But there's an application here that though this passage doesn't teach us specifically, I believe it holds true for us today. And some of you know where we're going with this. Ephesians 6, 17 says that the spirit, the, the sword of the spirit is the word of God. Beloved, if you want to be a man or a woman after God's own heart, your hand needs to be frozen to your sword. Amen. You need to have a tight grip on the word of God. This powerful sword is all we need to defeat whatever the enemy wants to bring against us. And just as the Philistines taunted David and Eleazar, Years later, Satan came and tempted and taunted Jesus in the wilderness. You remember, what did Jesus do? He used his sword. His weapon of choice was the sword of God's word to counterattack. What are the words that Jesus said every time he was tempted? What did he say? It is written over and over. Satan would tempt him. Jesus would say, it is written. Jesus would say, it is written, it is written, Satan. Why? Because God says, heaven, well, Jesus himself said it later in Luke, heaven and earth will pass away, 
but my words will never pass away. The more you spend immersed in the word of God, the more you'll be able to defend the attacks in your faith. You'll become strong in the Lord and in the power of his might when you take the time to learn the word and hide it in your heart. And then when you need it, the word will come alive to you and God will bring to your mind passages of scripture that you don't remember reading, you don't remember memorizing, but it will be there because God is faithful to his word. Beloved, oh, that our hand might freeze to the sword. And here's the final thought. If you want to be a man or a woman after God's own heart, you walk in humility because you know that the Lord brings the victory, not you, right? Look at verse 10. Who brought about the great victory that day? Was it Eleazar? No, it was the Lord. A person after God's own heart walks in humility. David was up and down with that his entire life. I mean, one day he's writing a psalm, literally a song, pouring out his heart before the Lord in brokenness and repentance. The next day, he's counting his troops and making a big deal about himself. One day, he's praising God for victory. The next day, he's committing adultery. One day, he says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. The next day, he's overseeing a house, a palace that's full of different factions of his family, all kinds of conniving and scheming and mistrust going on. I think deep down, David knew it wasn't he himself who defeated Goliath. He did it in the name of the Lord, and the Lord empowered him, gave him courage and strength to overcome Goliath. And that had to have encouraged David on this very battlefield years later. But David, David was aware of his finitude. He, he, he knew he was the created, not the creator. He knew he couldn't live this life successfully on his own without the Lord. Because a man or woman after God's own heart surrounds themselves with mighty men and mighty women. Their faith is bolstered by remembering what God has done in the past and letting it propel them toward a victorious future. A man or woman after God's own heart holds tight to God's word. Their hand freezes to the sword and they walk in humility as they follow Christ. Do you remember what the Bible says about Goliath? I mean, yeah, it says he's a pretty big guy, all right, big galoot, uh, and, and he carried some serious weight in his weapons and his armor, but do you remember how else the Bible describes Goliath? Over in 1 Samuel 17, 4, it calls him a champion. In that whole chapter, 1 Samuel 17, it's talking about David and Goliath and that legendary fight. The, the chapter describes how the Philistines and the Israelites were on two different sides of a valley with a field in the middle. That's Pastamim there in the middle. And every day, this hulking Goliath would walk out into the middle of the field and taunt the Israelites. And he's described as a champion. We tend to think of a champion as yeah, the winner of the Super Bowl, the winner of the World Series or the World Cup. But in Hebrew, it's a completely different rendering. Champion would mean literally the man of the space between. The man of the space between. That is the man, Goliath, who fights a single opponent in the space between these two armies. He's a substitute. He's the man of the space between who battles on behalf of his people. He does what they cannot or should not do. And that's also, that's also what 
David does. David stands between his people and their enemy. He's a substitute for all the other warriors who are in his camp, cowering in fear, unable to win on their own strength. And he strikes the decisive blow and defeats the enemy. And does this remind you of anyone else? Jesus is our ultimate champion, the man of the space between, doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Sin had created a great space, a chasm between us and our God, and Jesus became our substitute, fighting the battle for our salvation and winning it by defeating the enemy with a head wound. Yes, didn't God say to Eve in the Garden of Eden that someday the offspring of the serpent, the offspring of evil, would bruise the heel of the offspring of the woman? You remember that? And dear Eve, your offspring will crush the head of the evil one? Beloved, this passage is not just about David slaying Goliath with a head wound, though historically that is what happened. It's not about facing your giants and taking on the bullies that are bigger than you. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus slaying Satan. And so now, now we've come full circle. You're on this battlefield today where your king took down the great enemy many years ago. This whole story invites you to grip your sword tightly and stand next to Jesus as you tear down strongholds together and build up the kingdom of God. He has already won the war against Satan on this same battlefield many years ago. So there's nothing you or I can do to secure the victory. But what you can do is loyally stand firm alongside your king and, and fight alongside of him and pick up the spoils of war as you watch your enemy retreat. May it be said of us that we were men and women after God's own heart. And on this Memorial Day weekend, may we remember his victory and what he has done for us all the days of our lives. Oh God, forgive us when we make it all about us instead of all about you. We confess we have had hearts after our own kingdoms, our own desires, instead of having hearts that follow hard after you. But we know, O King, you stand shoulder to shoulder with us in this battle we call life. We ask for courage, strength, stamina, and above all, that we might be loyal subjects to you. And our names and our lives might bring glory to you, O King. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.